Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Atmosphere Electric. As always, I'm Richard on the other end of the phone. I'm hoping it's Fran. How are you, buddy? Really well, thank you, mate. How are you? Yeah, very good. Apologies uh, to everybody. Last week, uh, my wife got involved in uh, making me busy, and I thought maybe so. I thought I had loads of time taking the week off to be daddy daycare. It turns out I ended up being Bob the bloody builder. So uh, apologies for that, but but back and ready to go. Loads to talk about. How have you been in our absence, mate? Been all right. I've, um, I think I uh, realise how much I need the podcast when we don't do it. It's nice just to get some bits about football off your chest, isn't it? About VAR and stuff like that. Mm, I've, I've, I struggle. I still struggle to do that with some of the decisions that you see when you see the uh, the decision of the cup final, and then yesterday United having a goal allowed for the same thing. It just doesn't doesn't make sense. Yeah, so let's start with the cup final because obviously loads of really interesting plots and subplots and analysis off the back of it. And obviously, you know, a new phrase that was spawned by Gary Neville that kind of got trended as a few people, but obviously made it a few people laugh. Let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. What did you think of it as a spectacle? Did you think it was a great cup final? No, I didn't, I didn't think it was the best cup final. I thought it was a real lack of quality, to be honest. Like it was it was pretty end-to-end, but the quality wasn't there for me. I enjoyed as a spectacle, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I thought it was a bit of a, a lack of quality. And so, within the game, for me, there was, like I said, there's a couple of interesting examples. The first one is, is how many fouls Moses Caicedo have to do before he gets sent off? Or even booked. I don't think he was booked in the game either. Like I said there was there was quite there was a, a pretty horrendous. People were calling it a stamp. It wasn't a stamp. It was accidental, really. But it was still a yellow card. But how high up was uh, how how high up he was on his ankle? It was still a yellow card. Um, yeah, I, I just think he, he got away with a lot, didn't he? Uh, an absolute. Some of them were, were horrendous tackles. Yeah, he should have been at least booked. I, I think it just the job. And again, I go back to actually Liverpool, who were at the receiving end of. Of some of those decisions at the start of the season, thinking about top away where Curtis Jones got sent off and taking the ball and sort of following through. Like, I don't know, it just feels to me like at the start of the season, you could almost guarantee six yellow cards in a game for a whole bunch of reasons time wasting, you know, a slight missed time of the tackle. Now it's almost like you've got to break someone's legs to get a book in, and actually, the average Premier League yellow card is now down to two or three. And I don't really understand what's changed from September to, to, to February. Well, this is this is what the, the point I was trying to make it in the beginning about. You know, we're saying we're not going to talk about VAR. Is there's just that real lack of consistency, which is why I, I don't think you know when we said we're going to stop talking about refereeing decisions that it's really hard not to. It's always going to be open for debate because that lack of consistency, like you said earlier on in the season, they were averaging six, seven, eight cards a game, weren't we? And it was for the ridiculous. Which don't get me wrong, I think we're, we're back to a point where you know it, it should be. It should be less yellow cards being handed out because we should be more of a physical contact game. But how can you have it at the beginning of the season where literally people are being touched and then getting yellow card? Whereas now you've got, you know, Caicedo treading on somebody's ankle, which other people have been sent off for. And now he's not even getting a foul. Like It wasn't even given as a foul, was it? Like yeah, We've gone from one end of the scale to the other. The, the issue for me is that where, where, where the credibility starts to get lost within a season is that at the start, where they were brandishing yellow cards so vigorously, is that some people had a one-game and now therefore a two-game ban based on accumulation of millions. Actually, that could have an impact on, on, on a team season because, I don't know, let's say, I know it wasn't early hard. Let's say early hard, missed the game 
because he, he had five yellow cards for, you know, one was for diving, one was for time wasting, two were for tackles. But now they're not getting them. So actually, we're not getting the same level of punishment across the season. Yeah, and it's and it just comes back to that lack of consistency, doesn't it? And it like you like you said before, it's not like there's been a new directive that you know has gone out to the general public to say referees are going to stop brandishing red, yellow cards. They're going to try and go down that route. It just seems to have naturally happened. Which again, I'm all for. By the way, I think it is the correct thing to do. I like to see more people on the pitch. You know, less yellow cards, but there has to be that directive, and then you have to inform the public if that's what's happening. Because if if that is what's happening, nobody knows about it. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, it leads on to this, the, the problem with, with the FFP, which we'll come to in, in a minute around, you know, you need to have the playing field. Everybody knows what it is at the start of the season and it's for the entirety of the season and you can't change it midway through. Uh, you know, in, in any law, you can't change it midway through because it's just not fair on, on, on those at the beginning. But obviously Chelsea have been labelled the billion, billion pound bottlers. Uh, I think I've missed the word. I think it's the blue billion pound bottlers. Are we overplaying? The opportunity that was missed. I mean, that, that, that starting Liverpool level still looked pretty good to me. Obviously, they, they had to bring on some youngsters. You might not have noticed because the commentary team didn't mention it much. Uh, but actually, they've, they've come on. And by the way, those youngsters have gone on to beat Southampton in an FA Cup game. So I think people just need to start giving those youngsters a bit of credit as well. Yeah, I think so. But there was also a stat out there, wasn't there, saying that the average age of both the teams or the squads was something that Chelsea had an average age that was younger. So I think that needs to be highlighted as well. So, you know, Chelsea have got a lot of young players. So, yes, I think they did miss an opportunity there. And actually, they had some good chances to win the game. But I don't think you can underestimate how good Jurgen Klopp is. I think he's he's the key, isn't he, for all of this? Yeah, Jurgen Klopp has definitely earned his salary uh, this season and, and, and keeping Liverpool in what is going to be a fiercely contested league, so as well as in cups as well. And do, do you think it's given him a little bit of freedom, the fact that he's leaving in the summer to play some of these youngsters? Because actually, I'm not sure that he would have gone with Bradley, for example, as the right back when Trent was out early, if maybe he was still thinking he had like a three or four year project to, to manage. Yeah, I think the... I think the um... The announcement of him leaving it probably has freed him up a little bit, hasn't it? And almost given him a bit of a free hit to, to play some youngsters. I think um, Bradley is a bit of an exception, though. I think when you when you see the level of performances that he's putting in, I think he looks a real talent. So it's probably a bit of a no-brainer for him. It's not really one he's he's thinking, oh, it's a bit of a gamble. Some of the other ones he's chucking in, though, um, definitely they're a gamble. And I think that you know that free hit sort of mentality is allowing him to do that. And, and where, where are we sitting with Poch? Obviously. You know, again, the joke is that, you know, you can take the man out of Tottenham. You can't take Tottenham out of the man. Obviously, Chelsea fans thought once they saw the team sheet that this was a really, really good chance to get a trophy in his first season under their belt. Uh, but actually, you know, to be fair, they had a couple of chances, right? It's not like they didn't create anything, but but ultimately, a little bit powder puff. Do you think Poch is really, really starting to to be up against it now? Or do you think, you know, just stick with him, see him through, you know, give, give it another, because, you know, it's a clock three or four years before he was starting to win trophies regularly with Liverpool? I think I think the answer to both those questions is yes. So one, I think he is under pressure because he is underperforming. However, I don't think any manager coming into that squad is going to be an instant fix. You know, wave a magic wand and they're all of a sudden going to start performing. So they've obviously got some great players there and a lot of players have been signed for big money, but they're still not a team that looks functional. So the midfield doesn't really, to me, look like it's got much creativity about it. It's got a bit of endeavour, but not creativity. 
They don't particularly look threatening when they go forward. So I do feel they should be giving him more time, but he should be performing better than he is. They're not. They've not got a squad that's the eleventh best in the league. It should be higher than that. Yeah, I, I, I started to kind of. I, I like to kind of look at players that are really impressing me and start to worry me. The player that's really starting to worry me is Enzo. And I just don't think him and Kai Sango are going to be the solutions to Chelsea's problem moving forward. But they spent so much money on both of them that they almost have to play them. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. You probably didn't realise I, I did an overrated thread on, on Twitter and he was the one who I've who I've pulled out from Chelsea's squad of saying I think he's I just don't think he's that good. Uh, you know, the money they've paid for him, he should be you know, he should be a well beater, he should be absolutely dominating that midfield and driving them forward. He's just to me, just looks not that good. I think the problem you've got with um Kai Seda and Enzo, like you've said, is they're both the same player, really. I think that one of them should be playing and then having somebody alongside them who's really creative, who drives forward. They haven't got that player in the squad, so therefore he's having to play both of them. But yeah, to me that's the problem of the midfield is both of them are very similar players and I, I just don't think they're both that good, if I'm being honest. Again, we're, we're getting in the weeds a little bit, but don't you think Chelsea would look better with, let's go Caicedo, just because we've, we've both said that we're not massive fans of Caicedo Gallagher alongside him, with Cole Palmer in the middle, and then because actually where, where Chelsea seem to have a, a few options with Madawaki, with Sterling, you know, they, they've got players that can play those Mudrick. wide positions, and Kunku obviously needs to come back in again. Mudrick, you know, they, they've got players that wide. For me, that, that feels like that gives them a bit more of a balance of defensive shape, but also attacking flair with Cole Palmer being more in the middle and, and still having the two wide players out, you know, either side of him. I think so. I think, I mean, it's common sense to me. It looks, it looks the most obvious fit, put Cole Palmer in the 10 alongside those two. You've got some, you've got a uh, Caicedo who's going to sit deep and do the dirty work. You've got Gallagher who's the box box midfielder. And then that allows you to give Cole Palmer in the 10 a bit of freedom to get on the ball and create. To me, that looks the obvious fit. Um, however, when you've got two players that cost you £100 million, I would imagine that Todd Bowley will be saying, what on earth are you doing? Benching a £100 million player. Um, but if you want to move forward, to me, that's the obvious solution. I mean, Poch, for me, the, the fans have started to turn you know, almost weekly. More and more fans are turning. He, he might need to leave a £100 million player up because it's not his fault that they spent that money on the player before he got there to save his job because ultimately... If he sticks with this kind of concept of what well, we paid a lot of money for you, before I have to play you, he's going to get fired, and, and then where does he go? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Because yeah, if he doesn't, if he doesn't do something off his own back sooner or later, it's going to be him that's that's going to take the fall for it. But yeah, I mean, to me, I think it's a pretty obvious fix there. He's got a couple of players he actually could play in there. I mean, you you could be moving Mudrick in as a ten, couldn't you? Like this. It's surely got to be a better option creativity wise than having two defensive midfielders who aren't creating from deep. Right, the last point on, on, on obviously Liverpool celebrated so they celebrated with, with bigger and intent. Uh, do we feel that they've over celebrated? Do we feel that the Carabao Cup has gone from being I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we would call it the Mickey Mouse Cup and everyone was sort of laughing, you all promised get to the final. But now teams are starting to celebrate it like it's a it's a major trophy then. Should we be happy that they teams are taking it seriously? Because actually, why not? Or, or do we think we're, we're overdoing it and actually over celebrating? No, I, I, I fully believe that regardless of the club and the stature of your club, that if you win a trophy, you should celebrate it. Especially in Liverpool circumstances where, you know, they have gave a lot of youngsters 
um, the opportunity. Of course, it's their first trophy that they've won. And, you know, even for some um, senior professionals, it might be one of the first trophies or first trophy in a while that they've won. So I 100% think you should celebrate it. I think it creates a mentality as well. If you're if you're winning trophies, it creates a winning mentality, doesn't it? So why would you not celebrate? I think it's, I think it's odd if you don't, to be honest. Yeah, life and football is about members and actually what they've done there today is also not for work on Sunday. It's a potential lifetime memory of Jurgen Klopp's last season because, again, he's going to take some, as you've said, you know, doing a phenomenal job. He's going to take some replacing and who knows that the next manager is going to be able to do the same level of a job. So, actually, it could be a while before this Liverpool team get to the cup final. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, with Klopp going, yeah, you don't know who's coming in. You look at all the, the, the other successful managers that have left their positions. I'm thinking Sir Alex Fergus and Arsene Wenger. It's taken the clubs a long, long time to get back to, well, and in some cases, Manchester United's cases, they've never got back to what they are. So, yeah, I think you've got to live in the moment and celebrate. I completely agree. I, I think, you know, again, as, as a support of a team, maybe is isn't one of the, uh, the big trophy winning teams my team got there, I would want to celebrate it like it's a final win and enjoy the moment. And, and, and being honest with you, who really cares what the rest of the world thinks? Because it should be a moment where you celebrate with your, your mates, your, 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 your fans of your team. And, and ultimately, who cares what the rest of the world thinks? Yeah, exactly. And especially Scousers, that's their, that's their underlying mentality, isn't it? Don't care what the world thinks. So, yeah, I, I think they've done the right thing celebrating the way they have. And that Scouse mentality will definitely come through and help them push on. I tell you what, what, what has really kind of struck me, again, you know this kind of, not really, uh, let's just say, I'm not really very in favour of social media and like, I don't have any accounts, I'm not really interested in it. I do try and dip in for this, really, just to keep an eye on what the fans say. I tell you what, there are some absolute idiots out there talking about football. I think one thing that I've noticed is. You, there's some very good accounts. I'm thinking of Twitter. I use yep. Twitter a lot. There's some very good accounts on Twitter. But a lot of the accounts which have the bigger followings are ran by 16-year-old kids. And they're saying things, obviously, for clicks. And this, I mean, we're in a situation now where you're better off saying something stupid because it's going to generate more traffic. Yep. Which is not where you need to be, really. Like, There's some very good accounts that have little followers. And uh, some of the things that come out with a bang on. So, yeah, and I think it's just a... It's just the nature of where we are at the minute, isn't it? But yeah, there's some absolute goons on social media. Yeah, yeah. I, I must admit, some of it's been a little bit worrying. If, if that's what you really, you know, again, I'd be embarrassed to let other people see. You. I'd be embarrassed if I what's that tip to you, let alone put it out there for the world to see. But anyway, let's oh, not worry about. There's an example. There's an example. Let me give you just a quick example of something I saw oh. yesterday. It just shows you. So they, um, I saw somebody who is a Crystal Palace fan. And they put out a, a poll to say who's the best player ever to have played for Arsenal and Palace. Now, anybody that even Googles it will know that it's Ian Wright. Yeah. As an example, Ian Wright wasn't even on the poll. Like, there was three players. I think it was Maran, Shamak, Flamini. Like, it was just three players of, of more recent eras. And I thought, all you need to do is do a Google search to find out some players. And you can probably come up with three better players. Like, it's just, but they'd obviously done it because it's going to generate people saying, where's Ian Wright? Uh, yeah, completely agree. Let's leave social media and the like uh, exactly there. Let's move on to uh, this thing. Uh, you know, we spoke there about Poch uh, being under fire, Klopp leaving it into the season. Obviously, since we've been on, there's been a bit of movement, particularly around Europe as well. But obviously, Roy Hodgson has now uh, moved on. And I think it's a really interesting approach for, for Glasnier, who's come obviously with, with a track record at Frankfurt as, as an example. Do you think that's an, a, a good appointment, someone that can actually help 
bring the best out of that Crystal Palace squad. He seems to go off to a good start, to be fair, but actually maybe the right sort of fixtures to bring a new manager into as well. Mm. Yeah, he obviously did get off to a good start. Uh, I think it's a really good appointment. Normally, when you're hiring and firing <laughs> mid-season, you get a real lack of quality, don't you? But Glasner is proven at Frankfurt. He's got a very attacking style, so that's obviously going to appease the fans. They've got an eight-point cushion on Luton. Palace so it's not like it's really a risk I don't feel that Luton are going to be able to catch Palace so yeah I think I think it's a really good appointment they've almost now got a, an extended pre-season with him haven't they preparing for next season um, and hopefully with the attacking football that he's going to play which it looks like from the first game of the season um, they might even persuade Eze and Elise that to have another crack for another year yeah, I mean, that, that would be fantastic. I'm, I'm not sure how both of them fit in his 3-4-3 system. I guess they could be the, the, the two wider forwards sort of coming in off the wings potentially. But uh, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. And actually, Crystal Palace probably saw all of the movements that happened around Europe and thought, we need to get our man in early because otherwise there's a really good chance that he's not available after the, the, the complete kind of, there could be 15, 20, 30 managerial changes this summer. Yeah, I also think that obviously the way that they were going with Hodgson was they'd have been on 25 points, which even, you know, even without, uh, at the time, Everton had a point deduction still, didn't they have 10 points? I think they were banging trouble. But now with a new manager, the new manager, even just with the new manager bounce, say five or six points added to that, I can't see the other teams catching them. So I think it was the logical thing to do, to be honest, regardless of sort of who they got as well. I think Hodgson had to go. I think he'd completely run his course. The, the, the two managers that are interesting that no one really seems to have a bite at Steve Cooper, Graham Potter. You know, two two guys that come with a great pen good until uh, maybe the last couple of months of their last jobs. But, you know, there's two people that are waiting in the wings. Or do you think that Ineos are just waiting to get Graham Potter and Graham Potter knows that if he just sits tight, Man United is in the summer? Yeah, I'm I'm a bit... T- I think Potter's a really interesting one. I don't think Man United will go for him. I think they'll look at what he did with Chelsea, regardless of whether you think it's fair or unfair. And I don't think they'll touch him. Um, I think they'll be looking for somebody with a bigger profile. Um, I don't know whether the problem with Potter is... I, I believe he's still on gardening leave. And if somebody picks him up, are they going to have to pay a remainder of the salary? Possibly. So that could that could possibly send yeah. your suitors off. So I don't actually know if you'll see Potter for a while, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, look, there's, there's so many managers out there at the minute, isn't there? I mean, thinking people like Conte, I don't believe he's took a, a role. There's so many out there. So it's going to be a really interesting six to 12 months, isn't it? It's going to be a complete manager merry-go-round. Wouldn't surprise me if you see managers jump from one club to another in the Premier League as well. Well, obviously, we know that Liverpool's available. We, know, we now know the Bayern Munich is available. We know that Barcelona is available to name just three of the, the biggest clubs in world football. That will obviously be looking to attract uh, some of those very, very high managers that will go around. I'm sure some of them will be jobs. But it's going to be interesting for the like that sit beneath that of you know, Man United would be looking at that top tier in theory, but actually, are they going to be able to? And actually, you know, with, with Dan Ashworth coming in from Newcastle, I know it's not done yet, but that's certainly what they're looking to do. Graham Potter is the perfect manager for his style of, of leadership. So that, that actually is what makes me think that actually Graham Potter could become a very good thing for Man United. Maybe sort of over the line. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm I'm looking at, uh, at sort of other routes as well. Like I, I would imagine that Unai Emery will be high up on a lot of um, clubs' lists, which then obviously yep. Villa would become available. You know, there's there's a bit of you know 
take away the win that West Ham just had, David Moy was under huge pressure. So you, know, you could have West Ham available. The job that Gary O'Neill's doing, is he going to attract suitors? I mean, I'm going down the league, Newcastle. I mean, Eddie Howe's been under pressure, hasn't he? It's a possibility he could get the sack at some point. So you could be looking at 10 jobs in the Premier League with other, other clubs taking other uh, managers from the Premier League as well. Yeah, I was reading a, an article last night, I think it was, on, on the fact that Eddie Howe is... Uh, they're looking to get replaced Eddie Howe. I can't remember who they said. I said, that's a bit weird. But, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's even, it's even talk of Poster Cogley being in the line for Liverpool, which would be an interesting subplot of you know, a team that thinks they've just solved their problem, but actually he might move up the chain and go and solve Liverpool's problem. Absolutely. And then there was the comment from uh, Rio Ferdinand, wasn't this saying that um, Arteta, if he got offered the United job, would jump? I completely disagree with that, but you just don't know, do you? Say so he went. Arsenal could be available as well. So I, th- I think it's going to be really, really interesting. I think you actually will see a bit of a domino effect. Yeah, the, the one for me with Arteta to keep an eye on is Barcelona. I think that's the one that would tempt him from Arsenal, especially if they win the league. Yes. If he can do what, what you know, so, you know, what we probably never thought he would do, in, certainly in, in this time frame, if, if he could win the league, I think that would be really interesting to see whether he went to go in and try and fix Barcelona because they're in a horrible mess. And obviously, you know, I think that I don't see him going to Man United if I'm honest, but I think Barcelona could be one. Yeah, no, I agree. And just just on the manager front, how is Vincent Company getting away with losing every single game and nobody really mentioning him? Is it is it just because Burnley are irrelevant? Is it just because Burnley don't have a big enough fan base? You know, and, and and is it because we've all kind of fallen in love a little bit with what Luke are doing? Yeah, possibly. But I mean, the money, if you look at the money that Burnley has spent, they've spent some serious cash and they've got, if anything, they've got miles worse than when they're in the championship. I just think he's getting a bit of a free ride, really. I think he should be massively under pressure for some of the performances they put out. Like, I can I can sort of let Sheffield you off a little bit. They lost their striker before the season started. And when you looked at the squad, you did think they're going to struggle. Burnley, on the other hand, everyone was predicting them to finish mid-table. And the job that's being done there is horrendous. Yeah, I, I, what I do know, and again, I keep relatively close to this one, is that, is that the Burnley fans are not happy. No. That'll be the, that'll be the true test. Because actually, even to the point where they've taken out who was the championship goalkeeper of the season and put a youngster in unproven Premier League level who you know, many think could do better for many of the goals, uh, that's when really your management starts to come under scrutiny and starts to come up with the fan base. Yeah. No, I agree. So he's, he's making a lot of decisions. Even the, who's the winger they had who tore the championship up? It's not played a minute, has it? Oh. No, there was there was another uh, one who. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. He's not even played. They were on about loaning him out in January, and everyone's been going. He's our best winger. He's not played a minute all season. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think uh, I. I just hope that behind the scenes, and I've, I've actually watched that, that documentary on Sky, the four part documentary on Burnley. It's, it's actually very interesting. I just hope that the ownership who are obviously still quite new to Burnley, have got almost like a four-year plan where they come up, go down, then come up and stay up with that experience. Uh, they very difficult to do, as we all know. Yeah, no. Yeah, and you'd like, we, we normally call for, for time for managers, don't we? So I'm not calling for him to be sacked, but there should be... Pre- like the media just aren't pr- applying any pressure to him. I think I've heard his name mentioned once on TalkSport, when actually, look at people like Ten Hag, he's getting absolute pelters. He's in sixth. And I know it's not when United need to be, but they've been on a run of form, which has been really good. So I do think it's a bit um, unfair that some managers just seem to get endless stick, but others get away with it. So, 
been really well done. It's as if we playing this, and we definitely have. But anyone that knows me knows that's not possible. Uh, Ten Hag, we move on to Man United. Obviously, uh, there was a really cutting key stunt on uh, Sky Sports on Monday Night Football around how easy Manchester United are to play against, and it doesn't seem to be any form of patterns of play, both with or without the ball. But it was done by a Liverpool or an ex-Liverpool player, and certainly someone that's still very prevalent in the Liverpool scene, in Jamie Carragher. Do you think that the the, the, uh, the analysis was was correct, regardless of where Jamie Carragher comes from, or do you think that was a Liverpool player sticking the boot into Man United? Absolutely? I'd probably say there's a, there's a little bit of both um, sort of floating around there, but I do I do think his analysis is correct. I'm still massively unsold on Ten Hag. Like you said, if you were to say to me what is Manchester United's style, I honestly still couldn't tell you. And he's been there what two seasons now. Um, he had obviously a style of play which came along, um, which came from the Ajax way of playing, and he's brought in obviously a, a player from Ajax. But I just don't get. He's, you know, what he's trying to do there. I understand he's got injuries, and you know, some of the, you know, they've gone now. They had a really poor result, didn't they, the other night, which showed how how lacking the squad is in depth. But surely there's still a way of playing. Like you look at Jurgen Klopp, he's playing these youngsters. They've got a style of play. The youngsters are fitting that style of play, and they're just slotting in. I can't see that with United. So yeah, I think I, I personally don't think he is the manager to take them forward. I don't know where, where they go from here, though, because who who would they employ then to implement a style of play? Well, look, I, I think I think what, what's interesting about what Manchester United are trying to do, and by the way, we, we can criticise them for the last seven, eight, nine, ten, since sorry, it's very stepping the decisions they've made, but since Ineos have come in, they have made some very, very, very good decisions on on getting the football leadership team correct. You know, stealing Man City's key man or one of Man City's key men to come across the, the, the city. He's a very, very good appointment. Obviously, Ashworth from Newcastle is regarded in the game as one of the very, very best at his job. You know, I, I speak to a few insiders, a few people behind the scenes, and they all tell me that he is absolutely mustered. He's, and so if they can get those two people in, in and over the line, actually, they'll start to have a better recruitment policy that will fit a longer-term strategy rather than you know, whatever, 65 million on, on the 33-year-old Casemiro, who, who doesn't really have any upside. So I, I do think that they're starting to make some really good decisions, but it still might make them, or take them, sorry, two or three years for that to show on the pitch. Absolutely. And I think when, when you've got that that, um, that footing of, you know, the, the setup behind the scenes is correct, you know, the transfer policy is correct and everyone's pulling in the right direction, it doesn't take long to turn the tide, does it? However... Is he the manager you want in charge to be able to implement that? Because where you you know you look at Klopp when he first came in, there was a clear style that they wanted to implement, and the recruitment bought those players to fit that style. If you were to say to me, now you've got a great setup behind the scenes, what sort of players should they be going after? I honestly couldn't tell you because I don't, I can't see what he's trying to do. But you can can predict the future in the sense that Ashworth was at Brighton, he was really one of the key figures. Started that successful recruitment and that shaping. You know, when a manager leaves, they just replace the manager with another manager who just comes to the place the same system. So I think they are very close to having, and that's why I believe Graham Potter is actually someone that we have to keep thinking about as an ex United manager. Even if he had the failure at Chelsea, 
Yeah, clearly when it's Chelsea, not the right players for the system that he keeps coaching. And I think that they will give him the time for both Ashworth and, and Potter to turn that team into a coherent team with a playing style that's clear and apparent for everyone to see. I'd really like him to get given the opportunity. It'd be great for an English manager to be managing one of the big boys. I just don't. I, I, and, and whether or not you know the, the change of ownership is going to is going to afford them that opportunity to to go down the sort of building blocks route. I don't know. I just can't see how Manchester United appoint him after his Chelsea failure. If I'm being honest, but like I said, I'd love to see him given being the chance and the opportunity. It's going to be yeah, Manchester United. Are going to be very, very interesting watch. As are a lot of teams, obviously. Uh, actually, you know, have they still got the draw? We said this before. Have they still got the draw of attracting young talent to Manchester United? When really, you know, that why, why would you not go to an Arsenal, uh, a Brighton, even? You know, as a young player, you might pick Brighton over Man United. You would never have said that in the last fifty years of, of football. No, and you can look at the Barco signing, can't you? I think there's a lot of big clubs in for him, and he chose Brighton. It's just showing you where, you know, especially Brighton's development is. But again, some of the big boys, they're falling away, aren't they? And there's other teams that are chipping away. So, yeah, they need to hurry up and get a move on and start becoming the club that they should be. And so we uh, we, we started the, the conversation, all touched on FFB. Obviously, uh, you mentioned it earlier about the changes since we last spoke. Everton having their, their points uh, deduction change from 10 to 6. Do you feel that's a better number? Or do you think, actually, you know, you know if you said 10 initially, stick with 10? How, how, do you, how do you sort of feel about the change in, in, in that deduction? It really doesn't sit well with me, if I'm being honest. I think the 10-point deduction, uh, once you've given a punishment, I can't see how you can change it because... You know, teams like Luton, as an example, thought they were in a, a, a relegation fight, and now all of a sudden, bang, they're back to being five points behind. Now I know you can say that you know you, they should be trying to pick up points throughout the season, not relying on other teams, but I just think it's massively unfair that due to an appeal that the points have been changed. I then look at I think all it's been all that's the reason it's been done is there's obviously another case hanging over Everton and Forest, and they're now setting a precedent to say we think six points is about fair, but ten was what was originally given, so it should be stuck to. I also think it sends a horrendous message to the three relegated teams from the previous season, where it's basically saying you can almost if you if you feel you're in a relegation hunt, so I'm looking at Brentford as an example, the five points clear, go and outspend your means and you'd be there or thereabouts on a relegation fight. It needs to be a deterrent. I don't think six points is a deterrent because there's teams like saying Everton, Brentford, Forest, they could almost get away with a six-point hit in this season, outspend the means, and away they go. See, I, I just think it doesn't send the right message out. I think they need to be start absolutely nailing clubs. that are, you know, If FFP is what they're going to go by, anybody who falls foul of it, whether it's a pound to a billion pounds, I think they need to start nailing them. So for me, there needs to be clearer timelines on when the punishment will happen. Because mm. it, it feels to me like they kind of got one in November time. You know, and then there's another one. Like, how are you getting two punishments in one season? I would be a potential argument for Everton. Surely there should be one punishment per season in the next season. And so, therefore, in theory, Everton should have again, your point around 10 or 6 points. If you started with ten, why have you now gone to six? If they're guilty, they're guilty. Uh, I get that, but but whatever the punishment is, surely you should only have one punishment per year 
because you can only break FFP once a year. Yeah, surely you can only fail FFP once per season. Yeah, so if you, I mean, if you broke it by a million pounds, or like we said, a pound or a billion pounds, you can't then fail it again because it's all, it's each financial year, isn't it? So yeah, I, I mean, I don't get it. Um, where you've got Everton and Forest who are due to now have charges set against them. Like, when are those coming in? So there's there's talk of them being relegated this season once the charges have been done, isn't it? If they, you know, if that six points or whatever it is is taken away from them, they need, like I said, there needs to be clearer guidelines to say if you break the the financial um, in the financial year of twenty four, as an example, that's when your points will be deducted. And even if you have to retrospectively go back and take those points off and promote another team, I mean, I don't know how you do that, but there needs to be some way of punishment because, as I said, those three relegated clubs have abided by FFP and have took a massive hit because of these other clubs have not played uh, by the rules. And I think if that's what if that's the rulings that you're going to enforce, you have to enforce them and you have to nail teams for it. Or else, like I said, what was what's to stop Southampton, as an example, spending £150 million and breaking FFP and keeping them up? They'd, get, they'd have gained £100 million out of it for next season by staying up. So I don't think it's a deterrent six points. I think it's a disgrace that they've handed those points back. So, yeah, yeah, the, the, the FFP cycle is three years, but obviously every year there's the end of a new three-year period, so it can be done. And for me, they just need to bring the accounting period forward to, to, to the 1st of June. Accounts need to be in by the 8th of June. You know, most other businesses have to get their accounts in quickly. Decisions are made by the 30th of June, so that in the middle of July, before the season starts, Okay, it's not ideal because there, there could be some teams that then go down or, or or they're starting the season with a new punishment. But it just has to be done in that off season because they're just they're just not it's illogical to come back in November and go well. You might have a you might have a deduction, you might not. And like you've already mentioned, Luton is sat there going, "Oh, we've got a chance." Oh, now we haven't got a chance. And and and, and other teams have now been dragged in or out of a relegation battle. Off the back, and we're still not going to know until the end of May this year. Who's having a further deduction or not? It's just nonsense. Yeah, I think there needs to be, like you said, there needs to be a set date of where all the accounts are in and then those punishments are handed out. And if that means, you know, as an example, so Sheffield, Burnley and Luton go down this season, but then Forest have broken FFP for this year, there should be a set date and then they go, you're at six points. Oh, actually, that means you go down. And then that way, the punishment is relevant to the time period because Everton have massively, and I'm using Everton is because they're the only team that have had the points deductions, but... They should, if you take their points off them, that's six points, I think they finish second bottom. So Leeds and Leicester stay up. How is that fair? I don't, I, I really don't get it. And regardless of whether they've used the excuse of, you know, the funds were for the stadium, other teams have played by the rules. I mean, I've got more beef about FFP in general. I think it's just being brought in to, to stop the, the Leicester example happening or even the Villa example. I think um, it's being brought in to ensure that, you know, the small teams play by the means that they can, but the big teams can effectively do what they want. Yeah, I, just, just without being pedantic, if Everton went to second bottom, only one of those two teams would stay up, uh, not both. Clubs. 
Yeah, and and even like I said, we talk about refereeing decisions. Like I know Spurs aren't going to go down, but that Spurs and Liverpool game when the offside goal was given, another decisions like so that stops um, Liverpool getting top four, stops Spurs getting top four, any of the decisions. And I'm just using that game because that was the first one that came to mind. But I mean, is that fa- it's not fair? I know it's I know it's the game, but we're being brought into an age where technology is meant to eradicate these decisions. So. I look at it the same as then. Why can't they appeal those and get those points back or get the game replayed? Like I think we're just getting into a situation now where if the points are being docked in FFP, it's ten points. That's what it is. Whereas every other club is going to now start appealing, knowing full well that it's going to get docked. Like look at Man City. You've just opened the gate floodgates for them to appeal now, haven't you? Knowing that they could even have theirs, <laughs> theirs dismissed their charges because you've just literally taken a precedence now, knowing that teams can appeal and it's likely to be removed. Well, Man City insiders believe that they, they, they will, there will be no punishment. Man City are very confident there will be no punishment. Mm, doesn't surprise me. Money talks. That's what I'm hearing from people that are far more close to Man City than me, is that they, they believe that they will be absolutely fine and no punishment whatsoever. And the rest of them are just going to have to get on with it and like it. You know, it's interesting that actually as we speak, there is rumours starting to circulate that the Premier League are going to go and look to change the way the FFP works to work more like the European model, where it's based purely on salaries rather than anything else. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think this has been a really interesting piece of work where you punish somebody for the first time and now the teams have gone, actually, this isn't really working for us anymore. Let's change it really quickly so we can go back to how we used to be. So I, I think it's going to be an interesting period, not only for management, but also for managers change your job, but also... FFP, the impact that has on the game. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, teams like Everton, Leicester, Leeds, Southampton, even others around them that are trying to get into the, the top six have, will have been hit by this, knowing full well that it favours the top teams. Yeah, I, I just think it stinks. And when you mention Man City won't get hit, why would they lower the value of the Premier League by removing your best best club, best club in the world from it to punish them? It's just not going to happen, is it? Absolutely not. And, and talking of, of, of bad ideas and, and playing around with the game, so there was there was a brand, brand, I say brand new. It's not brand new, depending on what level of football you coach or play. But a brand new idea of essentially sin bins and a blue card. Have you heard of a more unnecessary stupid rule in your life? <laughs> no. Again, I think it just shows that the people who are making the rules of the game have never actually played the game or understood it. They are looking at other sports like rugby where it works, but rugby is so stop-start. Their technology is far better than ours. I just think it absolutely stinks. Um, I watched some of the FA Cup games um, recently and one I watched was Bournemouth-Leicester. There was about eight to ten yellow cards in extra time. Can you imagine if all of those were blue cards? There'd have been about four players on each team still left on the pitch like it was it was just bon- just bonkers like I, I just think it, it just shows a complete lack of understanding but, but my, my issue so, so just so I, I've been coaching with this system for two years now so at grassroots football this system is in place and actually it works really well with dissent against the referee for a couple of reasons the first one is that they're young, impressionable, you know, young men, old boys. You need to be sort of brought back in line to know they can't speak to us through like that. And secondly, we have rolling subs. So if my goalkeeper, which has happened, gets sin binned, 
for arguing with the ref, I can put my substitute goalkeeper in goal and I can take him back off again when I need to. Why would they need... So, so, so it works well at grassroots football. I don't think it can work in the, in the pressure of the game. But also, you've already got a chuffing card that does that in the yellow card. Why would you need a blue card? Just give them the yellow card. That's the punishment too. And then you're off anyway. I don't understand why you would need a different colour card to put something in the sim bin if that was in the movie. I agree. And also, I mean, I'm not condoning, uh, you know, abuse of refs or anything, but the standard of officiating, and it's not down to just the human, as in VAR and everything as well, is so poor, it's opening up professional footballers to give them volleys abuse. Like, I, I think they also need to look in-house a little bit and get the, get you know, officiating back to a level where... Because I, I don't think it was ever that bad. I think it's now got worse because players are so frustrated with decisions that it's just natural that they're going to have a pop back. I don't remember it ever being so bad that this was ever a discussion. But it's also linked to the over-analysis, you know, like Sky or Redwatch, you know, social media. You know, there's literally thousands of people putting, uh, millions of people putting every decision on it. I mean, I, I watched the championship game last week. I watched uh, Leeds-Leicester. And there was a glaring mistake in the game that arguably cost Leicester the result. But actually... It was refreshing, and again, easy to say is to be true, I get that. But it was refreshing that there was a mistake. They showed it a couple of times, but the game carried on and it wasn't in everything else. Like I just feel like maybe VAR is, is, is actually causing us to just talk about it too much and then focus on it too much. It's actually detracting from what actually is potentially a really good game that, that, that's had a, you know, a, a slightly dubious decision in it. I thought it, I thought it was refreshing, that decision. Um you know, it was shown a couple of times. It was shown to be a bad decision, but you can also understand why the ref, why the linesman didn't give it because it was done so quickly, and he's almost moved from one side of the defender to the very quickly. Whilst the ball hit the bar, you would have been looking at, at, at the ball, wouldn't you? Really? So I, I thought it was refreshing. It actually, shows why we should go back to to officials. And I don't then think you'd have the level of abuse that you're seeing now because it's being replayed and replayed and replayed. Yeah, I, I think. Football's in danger of uh, ruining a good thing. The reason why so many people watch football, the reason why so much money in football is because actually it's pretty simple to understand. The rules are pretty straightforward. Once you've got your head around the offside rule, the rules are pretty straightforward. It's fast moving and it's it's done and done. Uh, If they keep tinkering with this, it could very quickly become uh, not that interesting. The people will just go to watching the highlights the three-minute snippets that you now get on YouTube at 5.15 on a Saturday because it cuts out all of the wastage that you're going to get if we start to absolutely bastardise the game. If they keep tinkering with the game, they're in danger of, of ruining what is actually the product that everybody pays lots of money every single month, every single, month, every single week to watch. And that's, that's the danger here is that you might go too far. It becomes an American football where people don't actually end up watching the, the, the two-and-a-half-hour game. They just watch a three-minute highlight reel at 5.15 because it cuts out all the other noise. Yeah, I, I agree. I, it's, I heard somebody on TalkSport say, and I, I agreed, and I can't remember who it was, but they basically said football's not broken. It wasn't broken enough for VAR to come in. It, it was meant to come in to help the referees to eradicate the howler, a bit like in cricket. Um, you know, you've got the LBW decisions of the court behinds, which that you know technology was brought in to eradicate the howler, which it seems to have done. And it's actually enhanced the experience we're in danger of completely ruining something that wasn't broken. Yeah. 
completely agree. They, they need to stop coming up with silly rules and they need to make sure that the rules are clear at the start of the season. Every fan, every player, every coach know, you know, again, there was this whole kind of thing, wasn't there, about coaches not coming out of their, their technical area. Well, I mean, some of the coaches, I mean, even on Sunday, I saw Poch run past the Liverpool technical area whilst Liverpool were, were, were breaking, you know, on, on the transition. You know, no, we're, we're policing the rules as and when we see fit. There needs to be a clear directive that sits for the whole season. Rules only change in the summer and the off-season. That's when you'll get your FFP punishment. That's when, you know, it just makes more sense to me at least anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. Sometimes you see Arteta playing centre midfield, don't you? <laughs> I love those videos. I love it when people put him on these little bits and pieces. Uh, OK, <laughs> so that we've got the Wells, uh, not even to write as we just spoke about it. Really. But let's, let's, let's kick off. We've got uh, loads of games coming up this weekend. Uh, I'm going to hand over to you as being uh, the, the, the Gary Lineker role. You, you're going to talk us through the fixtures. I'm, I'm in transit. But uh, there's some interesting fixtures. Obviously... The big game is, is on, on Sunday, uh, the Manchester derby. Uh, is it as simple as, with Manchester United missing a few key players, this is going to be a very, very comfortable Man City win? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, the form that Man City are in at the minute, and they've just got Haaland and De Bruyne back into to unbelievable form, haven't they, after the goals and assists of each other. Um United have lost some players, haven't they, to injury again, with the key players as well, which is almost taking them back to before their run. Um, yeah, I, I can't see anything but a very comfortable Man City win, if I'm being honest. I mean, look, looking at the, the, we spoke about it, the Jamie Carragher analysis, Just uh, United are going to have to do a very, very busy week and trying to fix that problem because if any team could exploit that gap between centre-back and centre-midfield, it's Man City's, uh, they could have an absolute field day with that. Yeah, especially with the form that De Bruyne and Phil Foden are showing at the minute. They can get the ball on the half turn in between the lines. I can see Haaland having an absolute field day. And, and where, obviously, you mentioned Man United. Obviously, they've had a couple of, you know, they, they look like they turned the corner. Luke Shaw came back. Boy, in looks like they've the board. Obviously, both of them have picked up knocks. It looks like Luke Shaw might be out for the rest of the season. You know, it's amazing how much of an influence he had on that team and how important he's become. Because actually, you know, without him, they look a shell of the team. Do Man United have any? I mean, they all get very excited about top four. Do you think they've got any chance of, of reaching the top four as it stands? I, I actually think they might be not season over, but from a top four perspective, I think it's season over now. Without Luke Shaw, I think he had that big of an impact. Putting Dallow at left back, I like. I really like Dallow. He's a really good player, and I think he's solid. He offers a lot going forward. But you put him on the other flank, he's nowhere near as effective. He's not left-footed. He has to cut back inside. It then means that uh, Marcus Rashford hasn't got the space going inside because the fullback's bombing by him. So I think you know, Shaw has such a big impact on that team that the fact they've not got another left left-footed um, left back, I can really see them struggling. And you know they've obviously lost Hoyland as well, who was getting into the groove, wasn't he? He's out for a few weeks. They don't have another forward, so they've been putting Rashford up there, and that's not his position. Yeah, I, I can actually. I'd be very confident now to say season over from a top four perspective for United. This tells me how far the Manchester United squad has fallen. Is that the Manchester United fans are now kicking off that they sent Sergio Reggio from his loan? It tells me all you need to know about what sort of state that squad is. Because Sergio, Sergio Reggio is not, in any stretch of imagination, someone that you should be pinning your left back hopes on. 
No, but I can understand what they're saying, though. Is in he is a natural left-footed left back, isn't he? Whereas actually, yeah, yeah, the other yeah. options that they've got, at least he would give you that width. They say he may not be good enough, but at least it's it it's putting a, a round peg in a, in a round hole, isn't it? Whereas what they've been having to do for a long period of time is playing Dallow or Wambasaka there, and it's just not the same. Like defensively, you might be pretty solid, but attacking wise, you're just nullifying so many threats. And especially when your main threat is Marcus Rashford, and who relies on the forward to get by him so he can cut inside. Do, do you not think it's also, you know, again, we, we've talked about Liverpool, you know, bringing all these youngsters from the academy. And again, we use from the academy to be sort of, you know, in inverted commas, because obviously many of them were brought in for the academy rather than through the academy. Do you not think it's a sad indictment that Man United haven't got a left back in their academy they could give a go? You'd think they would, wouldn't they? And that, I mean, that was just about to say that. You'd think they'd have somebody who's left-footed, who plays left-back in the kids. And whether he's 17 years old, you know, give them a chance. It's got to be better than playing somebody out of position. Yes, you know, Dello's a Portuguese international, isn't he? And Juan Bissaka, I think, I'm sure he's played for England, but if not, he's of that level anyway. But they don't offer the same threat. Like, surely there's somebody who's got a bit of potential in the academy who can play in that position. Well, I, I was looking at a couple of accounts uh, before the Luton game, remember, sort of humbling the fact that Luke, uh, Luke Shaw uh, was 50-50 to play, and obviously it looks like it was obviously a very wrong decision to put him on in the end. But they, 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 they took a 16-year-old down with a squad that was going to play in the left-back position. And let me just give him a go. I, I think as fans, and again, you know, it doesn't matter what team you support, we'll always give a youngster that's come through the academy the grace of he's made a mistake you know, led to a goal, it's cost the game, but, but we hope that they work. And, you know, you look at what Liverpool have done, you know, you look at, even you look at like Oscar Bob that's come through at Man City, you know, you look at Lewis Miley at Newcastle, you know, how do these young players as they come through, I think it's essential for us to keep that connection with the club and to, and to actually we get excited when there's a youngster come through and, and Man United should just trust someone to, to give it a go. I couldn't agree more. I think you use Marcus Rashford as the Manchester United example. The level of support that he's received over the years is probably more than what he's deserved for some of his performances. But because he's, he's come through the academy, they're always going to generate that rapport with the fans, aren't they? Yeah, I, I just don't understand why you wouldn't give somebody a chance. But I also think it highlights United, um, what we spoke about before, transfer policy and structure of the club. Like there's there's left backs out there who they could have gone and got cheap if they known that you know Luke Shaw is you know a bit iffy with his injuries and his injury history they could have gone out there I'm looking at Luton there's there's Doughty isn't there at Luton he wouldn't have cost a it'd have been very very cheap to have gone and got and as a backup it'd have been a great backup like I I just think the transfer policy stinks and it just highlights how badly run it's been. Well, they've also got Malakia as well, haven't they? Who's out injured? Uh, who they who they did sign to be fair. Uh, and they, and they did have regular in on loan when they, when they got injured. But, you know, I mean, again, for me, this season, one thing that if I was working in a high-level Premier League club, I would be doing a lot of research to try and find out why there's been so many injuries across the board this season. Again, you, know, you look at that Man United left back position, you know, you think about Hoyle, you think about all of the clubs. Every single club has gone through. You look at what Liverpool have to do based on their injury crisis. Like, there's something else going on here for me that's more than just... Or there was a World Cup 14 months ago. Yeah, there definitely is, isn't there? It doesn't seem to be a single team that hasn't been hit by injuries. You know, Brighton had that horrendous run. West Ham had a horrendous run of injuries, didn't they? United have obviously been through it. It doesn't seem to be a team that it hasn't been hit by. So, yeah, there's definitely something going on, isn't there? But it's very, very hard to, to pin your, your finger on what it actually is. 
So uh, we'll we'll come to the prediction in a minute, but obviously I think both of us think that it's going to be a relatively comfortable uh, just to see win. So uh, over to you, Fran, in terms of where we're going to start. Obviously, there's there's not an early kickoff on Saturday nights this week, which is a bit unusual. Loads of three o'clock on Saturdays, which again is a bit unusual. So uh, where do you want to start on Saturday three o'clock? Um, I think I think probably one of the places to start maybe Forest Liverpool really. Um, just on the back of you know Liverpool have got a lot of injuries and Forest are fighting for their lives now. They seem to be the one who are in the most threat relegation wise. So I think that's an, an interesting game. Um, I can't see past Liverpool not not winning though. I don't know about you. I, I just think they'll they'll have too much. So even with the kids in, they play the same style of football. They they understand the method of what Klopp's trying to implement. So yeah, I can only see a Liverpool win. What do you think? I, 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 so for me, being honest with you, this is a really bad answer. I, I would really want to see them wait until the team sheet comes out. You know, I, don't, I don't think we normally do a five and five mm. challenge. For me, the rumour I was hearing was that he was kind of keeping some of those players that might have been able to play last night back. And so if you can drop a Nunes, who they've definitely got over that hurdle pretty okay at the weekend. If you can drop a Nunes and Salah back in, I think that changes the context of that physically. I think, not as far as fighting for their lives, you know, they're quite a physical team, you know, high energy, high tempo. I think if, if it is full of youngsters, I think that might be, and again, they've had a very, remember, they've had a very emotional week. You know, not only have they, they, they've gone and won a Carabao Cup, they've had to come back in a Beating a good Southampton team in the FA Cup, so you know, three games in a week for, for some of those players would be be a bit of a stretch. So sitting on the fence, I'm going to wait until I see the team sheet. But you're right, it yeah. could be a very intriguing game. No, I, I agree with you. So I mean, we said it on the previous one when I saw Liverpool's uh, team sheet. I was thinking, oh, why on earth were back then? But still, they came through the game. Like, I, I, yeah, I just look at the the players that they've got who then come in. And yes, on paper they still they still get the job done, though, don't they? So I'd still be pretty confident in almost the Liverpool B team beating Forest. Okay, so we're, 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 we'll we'll come back to it. So where, where, where are we going next? Well, who's next on the on the on the hit list? So shall we? Do you want to just run through the fixtures and do some some predictions, and at the same time we can have a little five two <laughs> minute discussion? Yeah. So let, let's start with the first one on the list. So we've got Brentford Chelsea. I think this is an interesting game. Um, Brentford. Uh, well within a relegation battle now, aren't they? And Chelsea, you know, off the back of a disappointing cup final performance, but seem to be picking up a little bit of form. They look a better side than what they have done over previous weeks. So I think this is interesting. I mean, my, my prediction is, where's my paper? Um, Brentford one, Chelsea two. Yeah, I mean, you've missed a, a key key word from the Brentford name, Dirty Brentford, as they'll be forever known in my house, being Ford. Uh, they're a very, very physical, aggressive team. Uh, ironically, they got out. They got out battled by West Ham uh, and, and, and given a real good shoe. And I think the Brentford team looks like he's starting to lack a bit of quality. Even Tony looked a passenger actually against West Ham. I thought he had his worst game. I mean, obviously for ages because he hasn't played well. But you get my point. Like I thought he looked really out of uh, out of sync with the rest of the team. Like he didn't want to be there, maybe even. Uh, so I think you're right. I Brentford think he, are in trouble. His head looks in. His head looks in another place, doesn't it? He doesn't look like he wants to be a Brentford player, I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't want to make a sweeping statement on him yet because he's done quite well since he's come back. But, but certainly against West Ham, he did look right. 
for me. Didn't, again, you know, might have been carrying a knock or might have been ill or, or you know, other stuff going on in life. But for me, he wasn't the Ivan Tony that's going to going to command an eighty million pound fee in the summer. That's for sure. And I think you know, you look at that Brentford squad. You know, Thomas Frank has absolutely squeezed all of the pips out of that team. And actually, it wouldn't surprise me if this was his last stint at Brentford. And actually, maybe he goes higher up the food chain. So, yeah, I, I also agree with you. I think I think Chelsea should and will have enough to win the game. I think they'll win the game 3-1. 3-1. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a Chelsea win. So next on the list, you've got Everton at home to West Ham. So Everton obviously should be a bit rejuvenated, shouldn't they, with their with their four points back, which takes them to a bit of comfort. And West Ham obviously picking up a win after, I think it was since November that they last won in the Premier League, which is just mind-boggling. But I think the key to that was Lucas Paqueta back, wasn't it? So um, how do you see that going? Yeah, look, firstly, I just want to say, to, you know, I love Jarrod Bowen. I love his story. I love, I love it when people come through the ranks of the lower leagues and earn their stripes and, you know, go and learn the crafts. And so I was really happy for him. And I thought, actually, all three goals were what you would call poacher goals, not wing play goals. So obviously, I know he's, he was playing in the centre-forward role, but normally he plays on the wing. So I thought that was a good sign for West Ham that he's scoring more sort of centre-forward type goals. And actually, you're right, in Paqueta, you know, actually, when, when they're full strength, kudos was back, uh, James Ward-Prowse, who for some reason has been taking stick from the West Ham fans, you know, actually, that midfield is pretty strong. Uh, you know, Suchek could have scored in the doors. I thought Thomas Suchek looked like he was back to his kind of menacing best. So, yeah, I thought West Ham looked really good. Everton, of course, are always uh, very, very difficult to beat. They're well set up. I think this could be a low score and sort of slugfest, personally. And I think West Ham will just have enough. And it wouldn't surprise me if this was 1-0. 1-0. So I, I agree. I've gone down a similar road, uh, route, but I've gone for one all. I think Everton could score, um, but I can't see there being many goals in the game. Q, six all. Yeah. I think the next fixture, though, is possibly where you will see some goals. You've got the entertainers, Fulham, hosting Brighton. Brighton are normally free scoring and free conceding as well, aren't they? So I think this is this is an interesting game for goals. I don't know what you think. They are the, the epitome of both teams to score, aren't they, Brighton? Uh, except for the one time I didn't really think that could happen, of course. Um, both teams struggling with a little bit of injuries. What's interesting, again, swinging back to Chelsea, is that Broha doesn't seem to be making an impact. Fulham, which is going to obviously reduce his price in the summer, meaning that they're going to maybe have some more difficulties with their FFP situation and maybe someone like Conor Gallagher might have to go more so than they would like. But bringing it back to Fulham, Brent, Brighton, you know, you don't know what you're going to get from either of these two teams. You know, Fulham could go to Man United and win and they can lose at home to Bournemouth and it's exactly the same with Brighton. So, you know, if I was a betting man, I would put both teams to score but because you're asking for a prediction, I'm going to go 2-1 Brighton. Okay, I've 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 gone very similar again. I've gone for a two all draw. I think like you said, you, you can't really predict what team is gonna uh, turn up, so therefore I'm I'm sitting on the fence, I'm going two all. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh next game we've got is is Newcastle, who seems to have, have picked up a little bit, but Eddie Howe is still under pressure against very informed and everyone's favourite manager at the minute, Gary O'Neill. So, how do you see that going? Yeah, I think 
it's going to be a problem for Newcastle because actually, as we've said many times, Gary O'Neill sets his team up to play the team they're playing. And I, I know that sounds pretty obvious, but actually, you know, lots of other coaches set their team up regardless of who they're playing. So Gary O'Neill has the ability to just literally change the focus and the shape. And again, coming off the back of a good uh, win against Brighton, where actually Brighton didn't score. So uh, and another game where they didn't have both teams to score. I, I can... I, I can see Wolves getting at least a point out of this. So I'm going to go two all. I think Newcastle, like you say, have had a bit of an uplift, but again, still look uh, a little bit shaky at the back. You know, Blackburn pushed them really hard midweek. They've just come off extra time as well. So for me, I think I'm going to go with a, a, a score draw two all. I agree. I've gone for one all. I can see Wolves definitely getting something out of this game. Um, really like what Gary O'Neill's doing there. And like you said, he sets his teams up to to play the opposition. Um Newcastle, Howe is under pressure, isn't he? And the new signings like Harvey Barnes are getting some stick. So, yeah, I still don't think all is rosy there. So, yeah, I think I'm going one all. Um, we spoke about Forest Liverpool. So, just give me a prediction on that. So, I'm going to, I'll go first. I'm going 2 0 Liverpool. Okay. I mean, it's, this, this, I'm going to go 1 3. I think, I think Liverpool, is it, is it at the City Ground? Is it the City Ground, isn't it? It's at Forest, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one three. I, I think Liverpool will have enough. I think, but I think Forest will score. I'm going three one to Liverpool. Cool. Yeah, I think I can definitely see that two goal lead there. Um, next, you've got Spurs hosting Crystal Palace, which I think is an interesting game. Spurs seem to have had a little dip, haven't they? Um, but still got a very, very good squad and are fighting for top four. And Palace, obviously, with a new manager in the bounce, may be able to get something. How do you see that going? Well, Spurs have obviously had two weeks off, which I think actually has come at the right time for those players that have come back from injury. I'm thinking James Madison particularly, who, you know, everybody thinks that when you come back from injury, you come back straight at the level that you left off in, which obviously isn't the case. So I think actually uh, having two weeks of almost like a mini pre-season they've done might have done some of those players coming back the world of good. It's given Timo Werner longer time to sort of get back into or get into the system. And obviously those players come back from the African Cup of Nations. I think it's going to, this is going to be really interesting for me from a tactical point of view, because actually, obviously, with now Crystal Palace going 3-4-3, three, three, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with the Spurs inverted fullbacks. Uh, I do think Spurs, who are pretty much at full strength, uh, certainly the only potential player missing from the first eleven is Porro, but I think I'm hearing that he will be back. So they will be back at full strength or there or thereabouts. I think they will have too much for the new Palace, but I can see this being a really entertaining uh, both team goal scoring game, and I'm going to go four two Spurs. Ooh, yeah, I I think Spurs will win. Um, I've gone for two one to Spurs. Um, I can see Palace giving them some trouble though. You know, with the new attacking threat and manager bounce, I definitely can see them giving them a bit of a bloody nose. But yeah, I can still see uh, Spurs beating Palace. So I'm going two one. Um, if Eze and Elise were, were fit and available, I, I would have a different result, by the way. I could see Palace making a win. But I just think that, you know, with Andre Ayew and Mateta, you know, I think they'll create chances, but they're, they're not going to punish maybe the gaps that Spurs will leave them. So that, yeah. that's the only rationale. But I, th- I think it's a very exciting time for Crystal Palace moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then the final game on the Saturday, which is late kickoff, 5.30 kickoff, Luton host Villa. Um, again, I think this is a really interesting game. Uh, Villa, obviously harbouring top four ambitions and have gone on a bit of a mini revival, haven't they, after dipping in form? But anyone going to Luton have found out that's a really tough, um, really tough place to go. How do you see that going? 
logic says you have to pick the right left to because that's just what the table tells you. But as you rightly say, going to going to Luton is not easy. You know, again, uh, last time we did a prediction, you know, I sort of said take the draw minus one man you because because Luton don't lose by two goals. So I'm going to do the same again. I'm going to say that actually uh, I think it'll be two one to Aston Villa, but there'll be moments in the game where where Luton are completely on top and really put Villa under the pump but I think that Villa will have enough and it will be 2-1 to Villa Yeah again very similar scoreline I've gone 3-1 Villa I can see um, just some of the pace on the wings causing um, Luton a problem I think Leon Bailey will will have a good game and probably score as well Um, Moving on to Sunday then so we've got an early kickoff, which is a great fixture by the sounds of it Burnley host Bournemouth Um, Bournemouth (laughs) seem to have had a real dip in form and Burnley is stinking the Premier League out so how that's managed to get onto Sky Sports at one o'clock kickoff, I don't know, but that's where we are. So, how do you see that going? Yeah, look, and I think Bournemouth have done the old classic, haven't they? They're on the beach already a little bit, maybe, and and, and you know they they were in a relegation battle, then they look safe and, and and they've put their feet up and they've taken their foot off the gas a little bit, and, and now you know results have started to go against them again. And so, uh, this is a sort of game that if you are Burnley, you're thinking we have to get something from this game. However, as you rightly keep alluding to, Burnley seems to be finding defeats from the draw of victory. So, yeah, I, I can only go Bournemouth win. Uh, I think, again, both teams will score. So, I think I'm going to go 2-1 Bournemouth. Yeah, again, I'm, I've gone down a similar route. I've gone 2-0 Bournemouth. I can see Solanke probably scoring and having a field day against that very leaky defence. Yeah, I, I can't I can't really see how Bournemouth... Uh, Burnley pick up many points for the rest of the season, to be honest, even at home, which, like you said, if they're going to start a revival um, plan, they need to they need to beat Bournemouth, don't they? So that's a key game in the relegation fight for them. And then uh, on to the 3.30 kickoff where Man City are hosting Man United. Um, we've both said we think they're going to win. How many goals do you think they're going to win by? <laughs> So every now and again, I like to do something a little bit crazy, right? Every now and again. So I'm going to go 5 0, Man City. Do you know what? I was thinking along the same lines, but I've gone City 3, United 1. But you could absolutely see a, a pumping, couldn't you, with four or five goals and United just not even laying a glove on them, which has happened in the past. You can absolutely see it. Thank you. Let's go ahead early. I, I, you know, I'm now going to argue against myself by saying that, you know, man, you keep it tight, keep the game at nil-nil, the fans are going to start to get restless. You know, you can see them holding on to it. But if Man City can score in the first 20 minutes, it's going to open the game up. It could be anything. But, yeah, I, I, I'm happy with 5 nil as a prediction. But, yeah, pick a number, double it. Yeah, I agree. And I think the interesting thing is if you put 5 nil into any of your bookies apps, I don't think you'll be surprised by how low the odds are. I don't think it's going to be a 50, 50 to 1, will it? It'll actually be something like 15, 18 to 1, which is just not a surprise. And then we move on to the last game. Um, Chef Yu again, who's already seemed down and out, host uh, rejuvenated Arsenal. I think this is probably another one where you can pick a, a big number. So I'm going 4 0 Arsenal. I can't see Chef Yu laying a glove on them at all. How do you see it? So I'd just like to say I'm really impressed with what Arteta's done with the reinvention of the team mid-season. Uh, you know, that they've come back uh, since changing shape slightly and it seems to have worked for Kai Havertz, it seems to work for Odegaard. Martinelli and Saka both look like they're back in form. And actually, that's what we were saying just a few weeks ago is that, you know, Arsenal are winning games, but many of their sort of flair players aren't really 
delivering like they were last season and, and it looks like they're back again now. So really happy for, for him to have kind of found that new adaptation of the team. Sheffield, as you've rightly said, are struggling and, and you know, where do their goals come from? Where do the clean sheets come from? They just seem to find ways to give away sort of, you know, silly goals and, and, and not put the ball in the back of net. Again, last weekend, they, they definitely had the chances to score more goals and, and, and can't. So you can only predict an Arsenal win. So it's just a case of by how many. Uh, and I think this could be a very comfortable. What Arsenal don't do is kind of go on and score five or six too often. I know they did against Burnley, but I see this one being 3 0 to Arsenal. 3 0, yeah. I've gone 4 0. I can see it being a. Uh... What just one-way traffic. Um, what I will say about Sheffield is at least they do seem to have a little bit of fight about them, even if it is between their own players. And that's what Burnley oh, yeah, don't. Quite. Yeah, that's what Burnley <laughs> don't seem to have, do they? So at least they are giving it a go. They just don't seem to be good enough, do they? Um, do you have a five-pound challenge at all? I, I would imagine you don't have it to hand, but do you have any? No, I, I have one. I have one. I've gone for fourfold. I've gone for Liverpool, Villa and Arsenal and then a Newcastle Wolves draw, which with the five are pays back 70 quid. Yeah, the draw is three to one, which I think is massive odds for a, a, a Wolves side who, have, who are absolutely flying at the minute. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely right. I think that could be a very interesting game. So, uh, look, as always, Fran, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, Good to get my favourite hour of the of, of the week. In apologies for some of the technical difficulties, and obviously uh, no video this week, which I'm sure all of our masses of fans will be absolutely gutted about not being able to see our beautiful faces. But uh, maybe we'll be back on the camera next week. But as always, friend, thank you so much for your time. Remind people where they can reach out and find us. So we're on Twitter or X. If you search for the atmosphere is electric, you'll see that we've been putting lots of tweets out there. We put a thread around overrated players out there. Please get in touch. Let us know your thoughts. Um, you can DM us or reply to the tweet. And we're also on the um, any podcast provider, which is mainly Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Again, if you search for the Atmospheres Electric, you'll see, I think it's up to 65 episodes we've got now. So a whole catalogue of them. You can obviously go back and listen to them if you want. It's up to you. But, um, but yeah, and if you can just go on those and rate them five stars, it just helps to, to share the, the channel with other people so we can grow the channel and get it out there to as many people as possible. Brian, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed that and I look forward to speaking to you next week, buddy. Take care.